The dollar continues to fall off a cliff as markets continue to rise, leaving bears somewhat in disbelief. But in my experience, when you finally have that disbelief and you have the bulls celebrating and telling you that it's all over, that's usually the time to sell everything and, uh, you know, batten down the hatches and hunker it. I have a feeling Mike McGlone might share that similar sentiment today. We've got amazing guests today. We've got Francis Coppola. We've got Anna Wall, who Mike McGlone mentions from his morning call almost every single week joining. And of course, Mike and Dave Weisberger. We're going to talk about everything that's happening with the dollar, with macro in general. And of course, since we have Francis here, we're going to talk a bit about how the UK seems to be traveling its own path on inflation. You guys don't want to miss this one. Let's go. Let's go. What is up, everybody? I'm Scott Melker, also known as the Wolf of All Streets. Before we get started, please subscribe to the channel and hit that like button. Since I don't want to uh, keep us in suspense, uh, Anna's a bit late and Dave will be joining in about five or ten minutes, but I'm going to go ahead and bring on Francis and Mike, and we're going to just start chatting now. Francis, I remember reading articles not so long ago that the dollar had reached parity with the euro and the pound, and it was going to be so cheap to go traveling in England. Then I went to England, and it was uh, like a dollar twenty-five per pound what happened i thought we were uh, i thought it was getting cheap for us americans over there well a couple of things um for some reason the power got stronger and the um dollar got weaker and suddenly it wasn't the case anymore <laughs> <laughs> for sure but why are we seeing this uh, absolute sort of slide by uh, the dollar specifically dxy of course everyone it's the dollar versus a basket of other currencies not dollar weakness per se uh, but why do you think that we're seeing this massive breakdown in the dollar? I mean, if you even look at it technically, it seems it's broken down from a head and shoulders. It's been for about a year. People calling for 90, 89 on the DXY. Well, I think there are two things. One is actually the um, inflation recovery hacks or whatever it's called, that one, um, which is, I mean, it's a lot of supply side stuff, but it's, it's, it's quite a big increase in government spending, really. So there are recurring worries about the American deficit and debt. Um, and coupled with, um, I, I think, um, um, also, um, oddly enough, um, the fact that inflation is coming down. And so the Fed is, the view is that the Fed is getting less likely to raise rates. The view is that it will, it, it might do one, two more, and then that'll be it. So that would tend to weaken the dollar as well. That makes perfect sense. Anna, welcome. I, I, I sort of joke that Mike every week says, I just got off our morning call with chief economist Anna Wong, and this is what we said. So it's glad that we can uh, hear it in your own words. What do you make of the uh, dollar slide that we're currently seeing? Well, the dollar slide is a function of U.S. inflation data. And I think that the CPI, soft CPI print we saw last week is not a fluke. There's uh, the next two months will likely see a similarly weak core CPI. Whereas I think the inflation problem in Europe and UK is of a different nature than the US. That I think in Europe, uh, in Europe, inflation has been, I mean, the central banks there have been more behind the curve. So I think the case for a continuous dollar slide is good. Oh, so you think it'll continue down. Mike, what do you think? Uh, on vac Mike showed up on vacation. He was supposed to be gone for two weeks. I'm plugging him. We, su we sucked him back in. So I'm glad we have you. 
Well, thanks for having me. I'm indifferent about the dollar. It's you look at the versus the Dixie, which is mostly Europe. You look at the trade weighted broad dollar. It's it's basically in the middle of the range it's been in for the last five years. And as Anna mentioned, there's a good reason, I guess, for it to pull back a little bit. But the key thing to remember about the dollar against a broad measure of currencies, it only goes down after it goes up a lot, and it went up a lot um, into the massive um, Fed, Federal Reserve, and fiscal stimulus and monetary stimulus we had into that peak in 2021 now it's coming back i don't know how much go- lower it goes but in terms of i i do i do enjoy when people equate it directly to bitcoin it's a small factor and i think the actual price of bitcoin now in the gold and copper it's a much more significant factor much more established commodities that are basically the inversion of the dollar but bitcoin it's much more okay what's the supply demand issue and is there going to be an etf from um, blackrock yeah, I think Bitcoin has been somewhat uh, uncorrelated if you look at any metric, even to the dollar, the inverse correlation that we that we saw. I mean, I think we had the sort of decorrelation to the downside on the Coinbase and Binance news and then right back up uh, after the ETF news. So I think it's hard to draw at this point any conclusions until we see what happens with the ETF app application. Francis, do, do you agree? Do you think that that's sort of what's going to drive that market from here on out and the enforcement actions? Yeah, I, I mean, there's so much going on, isn't there? Um, so I, I, I agree with the point about ETFs, actually, that, that that's kind of an ongoing thing. And, and there will be people taking positions on that. Um, and um, there's also the halvening next year, potentially. We're already seeing people starting to talk about that. Um, and I do, I do think that although the dollar doesn't make a great deal of difference to Bitcoin, the direction of interest rates does. So I think the fact that Fed interest rates may be going to pause may make a difference. I thought we just paused. Well, you did pause, but you know, well, I, you had a pause and then you didn't have a pause. I joke because we've had the pause is not a pivot. <laughs> oh, possibly. The pause is not a pivot stance here in arguments over and over and over again. And clearly they have not pivoted yet, right? So uh, do we but, think any... But there's, there's, there is a view, a growing view that the Fed is going to pivot pivots pretty soon and that that i think would affect bitcoin mike you don't think so well let's let's start with um market expectations you look at the um wirp function on the bloomberg terminal says 92 percent that they're going to raise another hike in uh, on july 26 and they're going to keep raising and we're not going to get a cut until march now this is what a lot of economists think but it doesn't matter so much when the market's already priced for it so i look at it and still simply a fact is the market, um, the Fed is still taking away liquidity and most risk assets are expensive, completely expecting this soft landing. And the whole narrative is termed that, oh, we're not going to get a recession. The Fed's still tightening. Everything's okay. I look at this as one of the most offside markets in history and the risk reward is just not good. And so if my scenario kicks in, which I still think it's going to, which um, we'll let Anna come on, on, comment on this, you get the normal reciprocity from all this tightening and it shows up in the economy but in a delayed reaction bitcoin should want to be the first ones to show it so right now the fed is still going to keep tightening and what's going to keep them tightening is the stock market keeps going up it's still that same um issue which is a problem that i overlook over in bitcoin is yes i'd love to be bullish bitcoin but if you look at that price right now at thirty thousand, the first time it traded thirty thousand was at the right at the end of 2020 right at the beginning of 2021 and if you look, so it's unchanged. You look at the NASDAQ over the same period, it's up 20%, yet the volatility in NASDAQ is half of that 
of Bitcoin. So right now, yeah, Bitcoin's great. It's got all this ETF coming on. We have the hopium for the ETF. But if the actual performance um, versus the NASDAQ, which has got AI and everything going for it, I look at it as I'm disappointed. And I think it's still the problem is I sense way so much bullishness, um, but yet the macro is very unfavorable. The Fed is still taking away the punch bowl. Image it's got. I, I just wanted you guys to see how good your lip reading was. Um, do we think <laughs> that the do we do we think that the next two hikes then though are priced in 0.25, 0.25 pause and we're done? Because if that's all that happens, it seems that's the expectation. So that shouldn't inherently make things worse. Uh, Anna, what do you think? What's priced in is just one more rate hike in July, and I think yeah, the market's thinking one and done. And then the next move after July would be a cut, as, Mar uh, uh, as, as Mike said, in 2024, around March. Um, but I, I think, you know, the, I, I see a discrepancy between the stocks market and the bonds market and the, and the inflation swaps market. Basically, the inflation swaps market is seeing that it, uh, there will be a steep decline of inflation consistent with these uh, Fed futures pricing that that the, the Fed, Fed should be about done. But the stocks market is basically assuming that, uh, you know, ec the economy will be, be growing robustly in 2024. And that kind of growth is actually inconsistent with, because, you know, stock market is priced on nominal growth, right? Nominal growth is a function of inflation. And if inflation is indeed going down to the level that, that the swaps market are pricing, which is about two-ish, two next in 2024, then the nominal income for firms should be continuing to, march, to be marching down, even if the volume is, is, is stable, right? Um, and so I think the stock market inadvertently is pricing in for firms to maintain that pricing power and that margins there, which is inconsistent with inflation returning to 2% again. So, so there's a big discrepancy and somebody must be right, but it's not both of them. And it seems like we have a even split on people's opinions on that very matter. I, I don't know that I can remember a time where I see, have seen half the market seem so overly bearish and half the market thinking that we're raging into a new bull market. It seems completely split. So hard to determine who's possibly going to win that battle, to, to your point. But it is very inconsistent. I mean, Francis, do you think that we're in a new bull market here? Or do you think that this is just yet another big debt debt bounce and uh, things are going to normalize again soon? I honestly think we're going to go in. We're going to be in for a period of stagnation, to be honest, because I don't think we, as you say, we've got a fair degree of inconsistency and think, things pulling in different directions here. And for me, that means stagnation, possibly for an extended period of time. Um, not least because although America might recover and America can be a pretty closed economy, so America might do better. It's not alone in the world, and there's a lot of headwinds in the world. And let's talk about the UK, because as I mentioned in the beginning, and as we've talked about, inflation seems to continue to be extremely sticky, if not rising in the UK, while everywhere where else it seems to be somewhat falling off a cliff. <laughs> yeah. yeah um, I, I have to say that the UK's troubles are, um, to a considerable extent, of our own making, and that's why it's an outlier. Um, that we have an extremely tight labour market, and that's because of the enormous restrictions we put in place on on um, 
immigration. Interestingly, skilled migration is actually higher than it was before Brexit, but um, it's actually um, it's still somehow not enough. We've got enormous pressures in all sorts of places. We also have some a problem with managed prices. So particularly the our energy market, where although you know energy prices have been falling, that hasn't yet fed through into what households are paying. Um, so we've still got inflation, even though the underlying cause of it is actually falling in price. And that's to do with the way that our energy market or our, our, the managed prices in our energy market work. But um, apart from that, it is quite hard to see. My personal view also is that another reason why inflation is sticking in the UK, despite the Bank of England's in interventions, you know, um, are, is that actually quite a high proportion of the population is insulated from them. So when we look at the housing market, which would normally be the principal mechanism, the transmission mechanism for the Bank of England's interest rate rises would be through into mortgage rate increases. We're seeing like 70% of the housing market doesn't have a mortgage. They're not touched. And they won't be touched until their houses start to fall in value. And that starts to affect their plans for retirement and things like that, because these are mainly older people. Um, you know, so and it's a little bit of a double edged sword because interest rate rises. I mean, these people are squeezed on their fixed incomes. But then if the Bank of England is raising interest rates, then that's mitigated a bit as well. So it's it's there's a lot of moving parts to this, but I actually think that this structure of the UK housing market has a lot to do with it. That, that makes a lot of sense. So, and I, I want to ask you, is it Anna or Anna, first of all? Because I, Anna or Anna? Anna. Okay, Anna, good. Because I don't want to butcher your name back and forth and, and just guess. So, so Anna, I, I actually saw a recent interview with you where you were talking about real estate and how it was somewhat of a, a canary in the coal mine for what's likely to come. So I would imagine that you're not on the uh, everything's great bull market side of things right now. No, I, I, I'm not. And I'm... I'm, you know, as the theme of what we just discussed is that everything is very confusing. It's very evident. It's mixed uh, between bull versus is it, is it going down the drain? And with the housing market, uh, I can see why um, optimists are saying it's it's bot, you know, has bottomed. Um, you know, clearly housing permits are going up. It was uh, it's very striking. New home sales are going up. Well. But but we saw that coming. Well, I mean, we we have this model that can estimate the uh, pent up demand of housing units, and you know, since two thousand and eight, because of tighter housing credit and it uh, for both the builders and also for a household, um, um, there has been a building up a you know multi million backlog of housing demand among people you know in in, in my age group, and and so the moment that that's what that's one reason why housing demand is so resilient right now and particularly in the last two years there's been so much shortages in construction supplies that a lot of housing projects is taking a longer time to complete it's and here is here here lies a little analogy with china which is you know you go to china there's a lot of ghost towns right and ghost towns is not really a problem with american real estate but but i think that one potential problem in the US housing market is that a lot of these places where we see still booming housing um, prices, because uh, in the past six months, the places that has seen a deep drop in 
housing prices are places, major cities like San Francisco, you know, Los Angeles and Boston, these, these first tier cities where traditionally housing supply is very inelastic, whereas places like Arizona, Texas, all these places with very elastic housing supply, where these houses are ready to be completed in the next, there's a pipeline of housing coming on, but we still haven't seen that there yet. On top of that, a lot of Airbnbs have popped up during the pandemic, and those places also are located in these cities, which tend to be second tier and third tier. And we saw in the Fed Beige book last week, a lot of mention of decline in domestic tourism in these second tier cities in the U.S. All these American tourists are going abroad to Europe, right? However, $1 spent on international tourism versus $1 spent on domestic tourism has different economic impact. I would say the positive feedback on the domestic economy is smaller because you will have less you know, money going to short-term rentals market, less money going to small businesses in these second-tier uh, U.S. Uh, uh, communities. And that's why we're seeing simultaneously a significant increase in small business bankruptcies and also, you know, uh, uh, going uh, short-term rentals, you know, going down in double digits in a lot of these second and third-tier market. So I, I just, I think that there's a, a, a potential for a second round of correction in the housing market. It, interestingly, just uh, there's a lot to unpack there. But anecdotally, as an American traveling, I'm often checking prices on things. And it is out of control how expensive it is to fly from the United States to other countries. But every single flight is completely full. And I'm getting this feeling that Americans are having their last hurrah before they think doom is coming. Maybe I'm wrong, but it feels like people are blowing out the last of their credit cards, the last of their savings, this one last great summer before they once again bat down the hatches and tighten up and this incoming recession is going to be here. Dave, you, you haven't been able to ring in for a while, but I mean, the flight prices are literally out of control. 5X, it feels like what they were a year or two ago. Yeah, we've been, we, we have half our team is, is traveling through Europe this summer to various crypto conferences and the uh, flights are... I mean, going directly to London from Miami or New York is literally insane compared to where it was. Spain is still a little bit cheaper, uh, but not cheaper, not cheaper than it used to be, more expensive than it used to be, but it is, there is clear, huge demand. But there's one point on housing I wanted to make, Anna, which is, uh, which, which <laughs> when you talk about first and second and third tier cities, I laugh because, you know, having visited New York recently, having lived there for, you know, well over a decade and now I live in Miami. Uh, first tier, maybe in terms of number of human beings, but first tier in terms of, of lifestyle, it's not even remotely close. And we there, make no, we, we, we make no, uh, valuations on quality. I know, but, but also thing, <laughs> thing is there's one impact that you didn't mention, which really matters, particularly in Miami and in Austin and in Phoenix and all the places <clears throat> to quote your, your colleague, Mr. McGlone. The fastest rise in interest rates in history means you have a ton of locked supply because people such as myself with a 30-year fixed mortgage are not selling come hell or high water. And so the supply side of housing is limited to new construction. I mean, obviously, you know, it's actually on a curve and it's not quite so black and white, but that is a huge impact. There's an enormous amount of supply that is not on the market that people might otherwise have sold, but will instead rent profitably, I might, I might add, 
uh, even when they have to move. And people who are looking to upsize are like, well, I can't because, you know, I'm going to pay that much more and I can't get my money out, you know, in a reasonable way. And so that combined with supply constraints on building uh, is very real. And so, you know, I learned my economics, you know, professors, you know, basically taught supply and demand is the most important thing in determining price. So if people want to know why prices aren't dropping in the quote, second and third tier cities, it's because of that. They're, the supply just isn't there. Isn't the real story commercial real estate though? Well, I think when every, everybody's been talking about uh, residential real estate. Every week on this show, I paint out the black hole of commercial real estate. Uh, uh, you know, in, in, in the, in the regional banks and, and why that is probably the single factor in the economy that makes me closest towards, you know, you and Mr. McGloom over there in terms of recession or uh, actually in my case, I think it's the, the Fed will bail them out. So it actually makes me more bullish, but I'm curious, what do you see as the commercial real estate black hole and, and what's going on with that? Cause that I think is a very thing. Yeah. Uh, you know, Dave, I, I, Totally um, see the reason that you pointed out existing home sales supply is limited because people want to hold on to the real estate. But I think the channel where I'm talking about that could possibly boost the supply of existing home sales, and this is where the short-term rental market comes in, is that you know as the labor market softens and people are suddenly now called back to the office, a lot of these commercial real estate pro. Uh, issues stems from the working from home phenomenon, and particularly in in big cities, but actually see, um, in you could also see it in small cities. And as people go back to their urban office, um, there should be less um, the the housing prices in these second and third tier cities will start seeing some loosening because people who thought they could live you know 100 miles away from the actual office now have to sell their houses. And then their, you know, Airbnb rental is not breaking even. And then the commercial, you know, small businesses are, you know, also could not handle the the rent, uh, rental increases. I'm seeing this in these second tier, third tier cities away from urban centers. And these are places where home prices have significantly risen, like almost like 60% in the last two years. And this is where I see the second second wave of uh, residential housing correction happening. But I also see pressure in commercial real estate in these places because the down, uh, you know, the migration out of people from these small towns are also, you know, creating pressure on the commercial real estate. Whereas in the urban cities, the commercial real estate, as this labor market softened, I could see, you know, over, over a longer term horizon, this problem would be less so just because people have to come back to the office and there will be, you know, a supply and demand adjustment on that. Uh, Francis, I'm curious. Sorry, Scott, I'm playing your your job now, but I'm curious, Francis. Do it all day, please. It's much easier yeah. for me. I'm really curious. I mean, I, I violently disagree with that. Uh, <laughs> I don't but he's have any power to bring people back into the office. Uh, mm -hmm. in they do have power to bring people to the office where they where commuting is is uh, is confident, you know, is, is reasonable. Um, but I'm curious in the UK, you know, how, what is the percentage of people coming back to the office from people as opposed to here? I mean, here it, it, it basically, there was an initial move back to like 50%, 45% and it kind of stalled. I'm curious, well, what's it doing over there? 
Yeah, um, I think it's not about which, what percentage of people come back to the office. It's, it's about what percentage of people's working time they're spending in the office. So what I'm seeing is a lot of people now moving and moving to saying spending say three days in the office and two at home, that kind of thing. And a lot of employers actually actively recruiting for people who will work who want to work like that. So you'll see job adverts which will, will be called hybrid um, or some of them will be called remote and those will be fully out of the office. But a lot of them are called hybrid and that means part in the office and part not. Um, and so um, because of that, in theory, the demand for commercial real estate should fall, but it has fallen already. So I'm not sure how much further it's got to fall because in the end, if people are in the office part of the time, there's only so much hot desking you can do, actually. So in theory, you need less space. In practice, how are you going to play this? Um, it's, it's actually quite a logistical challenge for employers. There are a lot of people who work like that, I think. Yeah, how can someone afford to own an office building or to rent office space if their employees are going to only be there half the time? Exactly. I think I saw that in San Francisco, they're from almost a 40% vacancy in commercial real estate. I mean, it's becoming a massive, massive problem. I know maybe that's like insular and, and specific to there. But that has to be a leading indicator. I mean, Mike, what do you think? Well, first of all, I appreciate that word. Did you say hot desking, Francis? Yeah. That's a cool word. Sorry, I hadn't heard that. I guess you get showing me. That's been doing doing the rounds in, in kind of banking and finance and consultancy circles for a good many years now. Um, uh, yeah. I admit that one. I appreciate why I, I mentioned things like um, um, to, uh, uh, to gold people about... Um, um, boomer rock. So I was surprised they didn't hear, hear that. That's a crypto term. But one thing that this discussion really brought me up is I had to bring up some charts and things I've been focusing on for a while. And that's first of all, let's start with new, U.S. new homes under construction. It's the highest ever, ever. I go back to 1969 on this one. And the chart looks just like it did in 2006, seven. It, it double topped and then collapsed. The big difference is back then is the Fed started easing in September 2007. Big difference. And also, we you know we have this massive spike in interest rates. Yes, we're phrasing up the sell side for people who do not want to sell their home and refinance at a higher rate. But since when is seizing up a market good for it? And another chart it may even bring up is we just look at producer price indexes, year-over-year measure. It's at minus 3%. It's only happened three times in history since 1949. This is the <clears throat> finished goods measure. And it's never happened with the Fed funds rate still rising at... I'm just using a three-month bill at 5.28% at the moment. This has never happened before. And I look at it as, okay, maybe the whole rules of all the lessons of economics and liquidity and cycles are no longer accurate, which is what I've been doing on my vacation. I've been really enjoying, go enjoying reading and, and relearning all this financial history stuff I forget on a daily basis. Those are accidents just waiting to happen. Now, PPI at minus 3% is probably bottoming soon. But the fact that the Fed is still tightening the environment, now we see China, every single piece of data out of China is disappointment. That's a, a tree, a, 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 a train wreck just getting started. So um, I look at this as this is the macro. I'm an impatient person and the market's testing my impatience, but these things take a while. A lot of people point to that China data that you mentioned and say that that means they're going to pump liquidity and therefore that's bullish. They have to. That, that's the point is, they have to, but let's look at the facts. They started dropping 
the um, required reserve rate about a decade ago. It's been dropping ever since. They've been pumping liquidity forever. Now we have a housing crisis that's kicking in and unemployment. And, and Anna knows, we hear from my colleagues who are based there, they have to be careful because this is the situation now that you can't put your name that's an article on China if you um, don't want to risk imprisonment. And that's just way, that's the fact. So we're at that stage now. It looks to me, China to me is a combination of peak Ch Japan and peak Soviet Union about three decades ago. It's all tilting that way. The question I ask is, what changes this current trajectory of disappointment? They have to stimulate, yet they know they can't stimulate much anymore. Locals, I hear the local local um, entities are so over-indebted, they have issues. And of course, the housing crisis looks like it's just getting started. Does it make it so interesting, though, that we only talk about the United States in, in general, everybody talks about our tightening cycles. It seems like the size of the Chinese economy, what Francis is pointing out in the UK, are we just really, really egotistical and self-focused or is what happens in the US with the Fed really driving everything everywhere? And what well, do you we, think? We oh, need sorry, to see, Mike, just one thing, we need to see Hank Francis not on this book. One thing about being a commodity guy, it's the macro that matters. Like I love hearing the data in the morning about UK and England, but it doesn't really matter for commodities. It's the macro. Um, and then here, I'll ask this one question of our group and every panelist. If the US doesn't matter anymore, just watch what happens with the Fed and every single central bank in the world trying to catch up. Every currency is pegged to the dollar. And that's just been what's proved lately with the Fed's rate hike cycle. Live before I joined Bloomberg, I, I actually covered China for Federal Reserve. And what's interesting to me is that in the past decade, every time there were twice when the Fed wants to hike but couldn't hike, and that was because of China. That was in 2015, 2016, when there was a, a China hard lending fear. And there was uh, 2017 and 2018, around when China was going on its deleveraging campaign, which pushed down you know, commodity prices and led to a European slowdown. And every time uh, that those two you know, cycles started, when China started weakening, there's this denial of economists. China's impact could not be that big. And, and that person, coming from a trade background economist, uh, economics background, I can see why, because if uh, see like, you know, these PhD economists, including myself, they look at direct trade relationship with China and you just cannot find the smoking gun and you kind of have to rely on sort of like an intuitive second round effect, something that's hard for economists to pin down. But I can, I just, I, I can say as an observer that in the past decade, the two times where the Fed failed to lift off was because of a harder than expected China slowdown. Francis? Yeah, I think this is right. That actually the impact of China, um, we're tending to ignore it, that, that there is a ton that everything is kind of the US, um, US pulls the strings and everybody dances. But I think increasingly that's not the case. Um, there's a lot of China balls and everybody dances going on as well. And quite a, a bit, I think, of, of tension between the two from a policymaking perspective from that point of view. Um, I also wouldn't discount the impacts of the Eurozone as a whole um, simply because of its historically extremely tight fiscal position, um, which does tend to suck demand out of everywhere to, to uh, um, have perverse effects on everywhere else. So um, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't ignore that either. I do agree that the UK, having separated itself from Europe, 
considerably less significance globally than it used to be, which is matter with some sadness. <laughs> it does. I, I forget, Anna, that you worked at the Fed. You just mentioned that. So I get to ask you the question, is the Fed doing a good job? Are we going to get a soft landing? Have they managed to thread this needle? I just want your opinion on uh, policy throughout this entire... I mean, I think we know that they uh, over-loosened on the way up. I think we can all agree agree on that. Do you think that they're going to be able to engineer this soft landing? No, I'm I think the jury is still out. Um, I'm on the more pessimistic side in terms of what is needed to bring inflation down. I think ultimately a recession will be needed. I see, uh, like Francis, I see that the most likely scenario is some kind of stagflation light, uh, um, uh, you know, situation going going into next year. Um, yeah, I, 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 I'm, I'm not so given that I'm not very optimistic about the next year. I would say the the Fed has done a, just a so-so job here. That's a uh, but I could be for a bit wrong. Dave, what do you think? I think the Fed has been trapped. I think, you know, when someone is trapped, it, it's kind of hard to see, you know, you know what they can do. And given the situation, they've done a phenomenal job. Because if you think about it, what do they want? And when no one's mentioned it, so I'll start with it. What they want is to manage the yield curve without the appearance of managing the yield curve. They want to keep the long end downs kind of finance deficits and that's a big deal and they've managed to do that uh and no one thinks they're actually manipulating it uh the entire world says oh well the yield curve is inverted therefore we're going to recession and you know i've been thinking for a very long time because i've been saying it every week like every every time i say it he shakes his head and that's okay we disagree that the fed is managing the yield curve uh, and that's why it is the way it is, because when someone wants something and that something happens and they have the tools at their disposal to do it, uh, to me, it's Occam's razor. It's a simple solution is usually right. And so the yield curve, I think, may very well be signaling something, but what it's signaling is the Fed is controlling it. And in that regard, they're doing a really good job in the sense of inflation has come down. The government uh, isn't giving money away like like candy to people yet. I mean, mostly because the courts have been blocking it. But, you know, at the end of the day, they're still trying. Uh, and the fact is, 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 yeah, you're right. I mean, Mike, you know, Mike has pointed out PPI going negative. He called it, well, actually, Anna, you called it, Mike, and Mike gave you credit. So let, let's, let's be right. But, you know, he called it in January that the PPI would be negative by July. And here we are. Uh, and has been talking about the CPI going down faster than people expect and the Fed being behind the curve. And that all very well may be true. But the truth of the matter is, I think they've been doing a really good job in managing the yield curve, and, that, and that's probably been what they've needed to do. Yeah, but how does that end? Well, I mean, look, I, you know, I look at it as as risk assets writ large are overpriced, and will probably correct. The one point that I will make about the, where I disagree with Mike rather significantly is Bitcoin is an option, and he said that. The market is the most offside in history. And I think overall, that's probably true in terms of divergences between the bond market and the stock market and very every measure metric of the stock market. And, you know, when you need a story that is an unverified story that is years out from contributing to, you know, value stocks, I mean, NVIDIA, uh, you know, 
you, you, you've seen this before, it usually ends poorly. But I will also say that the single most asymmetric return compared to likely probability that I have ever seen in 40 years is Bitcoin. And you know every metric on Bitcoin right now, if you do on-chain metric, adoption metrics is signaling the biggest divergence in Bitcoin's history. It doesn't matter whether you look at use you know current addresses or holding periods or whatever you know or hash rate every single one of them has been monotonically going up and to the right meanwhile we're nowhere close to the all-time high yet every single adoption metrics at the all-time high now the fact of the matter is my bull case for bitcoin is that bitcoin is an option it is tr it is literally an option when you look at bitcoin's value it is either going to be 20x or more where we are today. That's 20x. That's more than an order of magnitude higher based upon it demonetizing gold the way gold demonetized silver. And, you know, we've talked about this ad infinitum and all the metrics are saying that that is a coiled spring. And yes, it's been traded like a risk asset. Of course it is. It's an option. And so what is really interesting is the number of liquidations and the amount of leverage in the system is, is not even, it's a fraction of what it was last year. I think it's a tenth the amount of liquidation per $500 or $1,000 move that we were seeing a year ago during the Luna started, you know, at, you know, cascade down. And so to me, I think that, you know, we keep talking about it. Look at the, at the margin, the speculators drive the price, but what happens every time in this rally, when the price gets ahead of itself, it goes up. The, the, the speculators look around. It's like Wiley Coyote you know, having gone out over the, over the proverbial cliff, there's a big pile of dust around his feet. He looks down, there is nobody, boom, back down to the trend line because the actual buyers are more patient and aren't following in. And that will be the case until such a time as there is a supply imbalance and a supply imbalance could be created by an ETF approval, could be created by a lot of things. It doesn't, it's a very small market. And yeah, of course, risk assets will dump if everything else dumps. But I do think that Bitcoin is different. Uh, and I do think that there's an AI narrative emerging both for Bitcoin and for a lot of crypto. And that hasn't really happened yet. So yeah, I, I look at this very differently. I am bullish on Bitcoin. I am bullish on certain crypto. I am massively bearish on a lot of the use cases in crypto that don't that, that aren't real. And, and you, know, you, you and I have said this many times, Scott, 95% plus. Cartoon pictures are real, Dave. I, I, yeah, I, I am a huge seller of the value that people place on stuff. And I think that people in the NFT world are caught in the classic bear trap, value trap. You know, it, it's like, it's like, oh, well, it's so much cheaper than it used to be. It's like, well, okay. I mean, you know, they, we've seen this story before. So it's a very balanced narrative. I mean, I do see, I agree with Mike and Anna about a lot of the speculative parts of the stock market. But it is worth pointing out that interest rates, as, as despite the rate of change, interest rates are still somewhere on the low end of historical averages. They're certainly in the range of historical averages. They're not really high. And that's kind of important as well. Okay, well, now that you've talked about Bitcoin, and I think that we've, uh, we've litigated this to death amongst yourself, me, and, and Mike, Francis, I've been working on you, I feel like, for, for months here, and, and each time we get a little closer to you becoming a Bitcoin maxi. So I got to know, I got to know, I got to know what you think about uh, Bitcoin in context of what's happening now, and then we're going to ask Anna, too. So you're going to have to have an opinion, Anna, on Bitcoin. I'm sorry. 
Okay, so Dave is incredibly bullish on on Bitcoin. Um, I'm I'm very much in wait and see mode myself because I think I'll take that, that. Yeah. Um. <laughs> it, it is, by the way, Francis, to be clear, I am bullish in the long term. It is not a trading call. I, I think that the, there are rocky shoals this fall uh, coming for the entire market, and nothing's going to be immune if I'm right. And obviously, I don't know if that's true. So I want to be really clear about that. I just that's where we completely agree. Not completely hear that. Everyone, sorry, I just want to make your go ahead, Francis. This is real. As as uh, I'm just got you read my work over a long time now and you know about my views on the very long-term prospects for bitcoin which are that it will eventually become obsolete because it will get overtaken by better technologies and that is what happens to technology and bitcoin is technology is the reason why it should be different um it's not a, a, a although it trades like a commodity and it's treated like a commodity for regulatory purposes it's not a thing like gold it's not something that is going to remain unchanged over time. The te- it's a technology and the technology changes. So that's my long-term view on Bitcoin. But I think what will happen is that what we call Bitcoin will also change over time. And so it will end up being, oh, Bitcoin is on, on a bull run and Bitcoin over the very long term is totally um, investable. But what you're investing in, what what, what Bitcoin in 50 years will look, t- look like it's very is that like taper era? Are we talking about an ETF that's paper Bitcoin? I mean, is that sort of what you're alluding to? You're saying no, no, that the technology no, no, in some way evolved, it'll be some, yeah. No, no, not necessarily. I'm actually talking about the technology itself, not about the not about um, derivatives of it. I mean, an ETF is arguably derivative of it, and that's not really what I'm talking about. I agree that it is easier for people to invest in it. If you have ETFs and things like that, then you will get great adoption, and that will tend to push the price up. We aren't there yet. There's a huge mound of litigation to go through before we get there. The SEC has just announced a, a public, in, public, um, not inquiry, um, consultation on Bitcoin. Comments, period, right? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Um, so we've got a long way to go on this yet. Anna, where do you stand on Bitcoin? Uh, I usually don't spend much time during my day job thinking about Bitcoin, but uh, you know, I, I as an economist, I would see it as one of the most one of the riskiest risk assets. And in a macroeconomic environment where the Fed is likely to hold higher or longer, and you can you know make five percent interest rate on per year on just a very safe asset like CDs or money market funds, the competition. For taking risk for for you know something something like holding Bitcoin, there's just more competition. I, I I don't see how a risky asset could outperform, and as particularly if Francis and my vision of the stagflation outlook plays out, then I just don't see how it's um, you know it would be outperforming. I think that's fair. I think that's fair. Uh, they, I, I I tend to disagree. But I think that that's fair. And I know Dave tends to disagree as well. Because France, obviously, I believe that it's here to stay and it is more like a digital gold. But the good news is that for all of us, I guess history will prove who's, who's right or wrong. And it doesn't really matter for now. It seems that there's a pretty good consensus amongst the panel that we're all gloom a little bit for for the fall <laughs> for, for, for all of these assets, right, Mike? <laughs> you said that's the one thing we all agree on. Well, but there's... <clears throat> Well, we all agree. It's probably best that we disagree and talk about it and let our audience decide. But there's a lot of things that 
everybody said, I think we can all put together. I definitely agree with Dave about the optionality of Bitcoin and digital gold. And remember, I made the call for 100,000 Bitcoin when it was trading below 20. And we got that in Ethereum. Um, and then, of course, what happened with China. And I still stick with that long term. But I think it's more likely to drop 50% and get down to 20, even make a new low before it goes on that trajectory, particularly when I th- see things like, well, I can get five and a quarter and a T-bill done. I look at the Case-Shiller index, the housing index. It just was almost at the highest ever right before, like 2006, up 20%. Now it's down 1%. That's collapsing. I look at the Fed still tightening. And the last thing that always usually falls is the stock market. Just look at your history. I remember 2006 and seven was tough, just like Big Short. I was short a lot of stuff and I didn't get paid back until 2008. It's just the way it worked and people get stopped up. But there's two, two things. One thing I want to mention is what's happening with case dealer. Bitcoin, I completely agree, but it has major competition like gold does from the U.S., the, the, the base currency, giving you the best rate on the planet and the deepest market, deepest treasury market. But there's one thing I also want to mention I really enjoyed recently to, to point out how significant this technology is. We're hearing about Hong Kong maybe lightening up a little bit of their regulations and they approved, I heard they might approve a Hong Kong crypto dollar. The Hong Kong dollar is pegged to the US dollar, which means it's a quasi crypto dollar. Dollar stable coin. So, so, so is the Chinese yuan, right? But so it's the digital yuan. Exactly. It shows how significant this technology has adapted to the US system, to the dollar organically. And it's for the US not to mess it up. And I think the updated Lummis Jill Brenville is going to show that they're not going to mess it up. But it just shows that you can't overweight them. So I just double checked. I would love to check the volume. I show this to everyone. If you check on coinmarketcap.com and kick, click on volume, Tether is always number one. You love it or hate it, but I've seen that since 2018 in Hong Kong, they pointed it out to me. I have a question. Something I just thought of when you were saying that, because I've made the you can't beat the treasury rate just by T-bills argument myself. But are we talking about completely different people? Are the people who are going to buy and bid Bitcoin the same ones who would ever put their money into a quote unquote boring T-bill? I mean, is there a generational gap here? So are we may be wrong that those two things are competitive. I know they're competitive on the institutional side, but Bitcoin's price action has largely been driven, we know, by retail o- over the years. So maybe these are just a bunch of 25-year-olds who now have some wealth in crypto and would never buy a bond in their lives. And they have, they have not risked, that they have not had their faces ripped off by markets. And that will always happen. You will see the stock market drop 50% and stay down and not make a high for 10, 20 years. It always happens. It always happens at the biggest pumps in liquidity, which we've had. It could stay, make, take a new high, but I love hearing traders have traded for 10 years. I've been trading for 10 years. Like, you need to trade for 30 years. And this is Dave. I knew Dave would laugh because we've seen this before. And I've seen it. It's the narrative I've seen. It's usually the psychology. When you hear people, when people tell you, oh, well, be, when you, you just express something rational and un, um, optimistic about how markets work and they tell things, they say things like, well, I'll feel great being poor. And then you look at yourself. I remember hearing that in the 80s, in 87. I remember hearing it in 2000. I remember hearing it in 2006. And the key thing I'm really worried about, and I'll end with this, is there's so much bullishness, even from Larry Fink, who has a vested interest in pushing a product to track Bitcoin right now, that I have to push back and say, good luck with that one. T-bills look great. And yes, we've seen this before. Yeah, the only place where I disagree, I mean, look, I disagree because of uh, of data, right? You know, I'm a I'm a data junkie. We all know that, and the data is suggestive of my prime disagreement. Francis's narrative is Bitcoin is not technology. 
I mean, yeah, you, it was created by technology, but it's not technology. It's a network. And, you know, it, there's no question that either Twitter or Facebook or, you know, any network effect generating company uh, has its adoption and network effect what matters. I mean, there was a, this immaculate conception of Bitcoin. It wasn't obviously immaculate. Some humans did it. Probably Satoshi is a group of people. But it doesn't matter. The fact is, people are skeptical. And if you look at the monetary policy of Bitcoin and you look at its adoption metrics and you look at the strength of network and you look at a lot, you know, it, it, you go into Glassnode and there's like 10 charts you can pull up, which all show the same thing. It's not about the technology. In fact, probably one of the most articulate ways of expressing why it is not about better, faster technology is Jason Lowry. Now, I don't agree with his thesis of calling Bitcoin a form of warfare or whatever. I don't know, Scott, if you ever talked to Jason, but I, I haven't. Software for anyone, yeah, if anyone has yeah, read it. But, but he makes a point that a feature, not a bug, is the slowness and the need for energy to validate transactions. And you could talk about this, and it's a whole other conversation. But we'll, we'll, we'll leave that aside. I think the fact of the matter is that when you look at markets, markets, people always forget, and Mike and I know, that in bear markets, I mean significant bear markets, correlations go towards one. So it doesn't really matter. So if you believe that we're due for a, a mass correction or a mass bear market event, everything will go down. Now, I'm not sure that that's clear. Uh, I certainly think we are vulnerable to it. But I also, my thesis has been, and I'm going to point it out because as we're getting closer and closer, the U.S. presidential election cycle, as we enter next year, I think the odds of the Fed surprising the market to the downside becomes zero. And the likelihood of them trying to stay out of it at a bare minimum uh, become much higher. And so you'll be more accommodative next year. I do think that any further rate rises, you know, the reason the markets are pricing what they're pricing is people kind of think the same. And so the, the, the real issue is, is do we navigate the fall uh, or not? And, you know, I, as I said, I don't have a strong opinion on that. I just don't. And do you think that the election year next year will be a major factor in how the Fed's policy is orchestrated? Um, not, not directly, but, um, you know, if you look at the makeup of the FOMC members, however, they are leading dovish and, you know, one of the biggest hawks on the FOMC committee is Jim Bullard and he has just announced his, uh, departure, which means really? the Biden administration has another opportunity to appoint or helped influence uh, a dovish pick. And I think. So we have seen already uh, an addition of Adriana Krugler on the on the committee, um, and he, she will likely be a dovish voice. So I think it's indirect. I mean, after all, people's view of the world is affected by their way, their you know, indirectly their political leanings. So I think ultimately, yes, the Fed will lean dovish, but not directly because you know they're actively trying to get Biden. Uh, right. reelected or anything, but just because their view of the world is in that soft landing, you know, immaculate disinflation kind of view. Mike, I want to laugh because I, I, I'm not sure who said it earlier, but some somebody said, uh, I believe it was you, Anna, you said now it's pricing in the uh, pivot effectively next March, right? That then that's the first time that we'll see the cut. Three months ago, we were pricing in three pivots in 2023, 
right? So yeah. uh, that 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 data to me, all of this, like the, the odds, you see 90% chance of uh, 25%, and then one Fed speaker speaks, it's all of a sudden 30% the next day. So I so, find all of these sort of leading guesses to be very difficult to take seriously. Well, so it's a moving average. The rate cut, the rate's going to cut. It's been six months on forward for the last 12 months. <laughs> We're going to get that cut. And this is one thing our colleague Anna um, has. We have a colleague named Ira Jersey who's been spot on. No, they're not going to be cutting rates at the end of the year. And he said that at the beginning of the year when it was priced for cutting rates. Now it's, you know, it's priced for the next, uh, we're going to start in March. So it's what, essentially six months or so from now. So yes, it's that delayed reaction, but it's what scares me. Obviously my people and markets, I'm impatient. It's the fact that what's the key thing that's this, that's still driving the Fed to keep hiking rates. Yes, they're looking at lagging inflation and, and Anna's over that, but we all know the bottom line is the stock market. If it goes down, they'll stop hiking. If it goes down a lot, they'll eat. It's what they've always done. This is what's different though, as Anna points out, is that sticky numbers are there. That's what I look at this as a lose-lose. The fact that the stock market's still going up keeps the Fed still still vigilant means there's going to be a train wreck at some point. Something's got to end. I don't know what it's going to take, but you look at all the, like I see, PPI minus 3%, and they're still hiking. I've never seen that in history. And of course, our data is only since 1948. Right. It's worth noting once again, which we mentioned all the time, that first you get the uh, yield curve uninverting, then you get the pivot, then you get the stock market crash. And we have to have massive denial for markets to make it. Everybody here, it's already open. There's a chart, right? I mean, you have the uh, yield curve in blue, uninverts, then the Fed red pivots and then stocks crash. I mean, it happens. It's, it happens almost every single time. So people are waiting for this magical pivot to save the market, but that's actually the signal that stocks are about to go into a bear market. Well, so we don't need a crash, but I think it's it's one of those historical examples of just the, ma- the simple lessons of liquidity, pumping assets, and then uh, assets declining liquidity. Liquidity contracts. Liquidity is still contracting. Assets are still going up. Not all of them, but just the stock market. And this is a question of Will all these rules of economics prevail? I kind of stick with that. The rules will generally prevail. Francis, what do you think about uh, the pivot specifically? Yes, I agree. About the pivot specifically, what do you think? Do you think that that's something we will see sooner than later? Or do you think that maybe we just get a very, very long pause? I think we... Like I kind of each way bet on this really because um, they're not going to continue hiking. The question is whether they just stop and leave interest rates where they are. That's right. Yeah, or whether they actually cut. And I think a lot depends actually on how much liquidity there is in markets as to what they actually do. Um, if we have the uh, the kind of market disruptions we've seen before. Um, when the, uh, then we might end up with interest rate cuts and the restarting of QE in some form. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned that uh, we would get that stagnation yeah. uh, was your sort of base case, and wouldn't that just be a pause that's sort of indefinite? And no, uh, well, because it, well, actually, stagflation, which if you look back to the nineteen seventies, is actually where you have no growth and inflation, and so actually you have, you have rising interest rates. Um, I, I said stagnation, not stagflation. I think we've got stagflation here in the UK for sure. I'm not so sure that you have in the U- US. Um, but if you have, then breaking that does need a recession because you've got because you've actually got to crash the labour market, and that's a tough thing for the Fed to do because it's dual mandates. 
Yeah. Um, so, so my the stagflation in the U.S. because it's a tough, tough, tough one to deal with. I mean, that's Mike's favorite point to make, right? I mean, there's only one way for jobs to go. Yeah. Right, Mike. Yeah. I mean, if, if we're at historic lows, we're going to see unemployment, and they're still tightening into it. Yeah. Well, I yeah. see Anna smiling, and and go, go ahead. I'll let the economist be. Yeah. Well, well, well. I I think that you know, even if we have a sort of stagflation light scenario in US this, that's why we're stagflation light, not not real stagflation. Uh, where, you know, where I'm not talking about, about about inflation being double digit. I'm just talking about inflation being permanently at over three percent or four percent. And and the Fed will could just hold it longer. It does he even cut because what the Fed wants is to keep the real rates constant or even rising. And so you know if it, our forecast is for inflation to linger around 3% next year. And in that case, if you want to keep the real rates rising or rising, you just need to keep your nominal rates constant, then real rates is rising. So so I think we are in for a period where, you know, the Fed is our baseline is for them to hold rates um, constant. But we did show in the past, uh, we did see in the past six months that the Fed is very reactive to any disruption in the credit market and if if your you know you guys view of the problems in cre commercial real estate really do come to pass i do expect the fed will cut because they are very sensitive to that sort of thing and there we are at 10 o'clock guys i can't believe that was an hour that went by so fast i guess when you have uh five five people it uh, goes by a lot faster thank you so much all of you for joining francis once again we, we love to have you Mike, thanks for checking in on vacation. Dave, guys, you should have seen Dave. He was driving. We could see through his roof. It was a beautiful sunny day. And he's in his Formula One uh, shirt trying to spite me with his uh, number one guy instead of my number two guy. Uh, and uh, and Anna, it's the first time we had you, but I'm telling you, we talk about you all the time. So, and only in a good light. So it's wonderful to have you uh, joining. Everybody, of course, Twitter space is in 15 minutes. Uh, I think the topic today is because of the slow news cycle is uh, what Bitcoiners can learn from Ethereum, which seems extremely contentious. And I'm just going to mute my mic and let people scream at each other. So if you guys want to hear that, feel free to come join. Uh, and everybody, I will be back again tomorrow. Once again, thank you to all our guests. Uh, really enlightening, incredible. Mike, enjoy the rest of your vacation. Bye, everyone. That's dope.